There we go. All right. Uh, my name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I am one of the preachers Hi. here at TFC. Um, and also, I am a middle school science teacher. So, oh, wow. Okay, not the response I was expecting. <laughs> uh, but, but many people say, ooh, when they hear that, but more like, ooh. Like, ooh, uh, yeah, no. Are mi- middle school... Like, are you crazy? Um, yeah, I could never do that. That's, that's often the, the response that I get when I say that. But there are some people, like yourselves apparently, who, who get it, who understand what it means to be a middle school science teacher. And those of us who are in that profession have a particular way of reasoning. We, we see the awkwardness as just a time of incredible growth. We see the, the juvenile humor as legitimately and genuinely hilarious. We see the drama. No, that's still just drama. Uh, nobody really likes that. But my point is that, that God has made me in such a way to be a middle school teacher. Even though I haven't always been one. God has given me this mindset, this, this worldview, the type of reasoning of a middle school teacher. And so everything that I do, I make decisions and choices accordingly to that mindset. And this morning, we're going to hear another defense from Paul as he stands before yet another judge in Acts 26. This is on page 879, if you have one of the church Bibles. And this morning, we're going to see that the defense that he makes and the choices that he makes are also determined by his form of reasoning. But for Paul, this is a resurrection reasoning. That means that the choices that he makes may seem even crazier than teaching middle school. So first, let's start with a a bit of a brief background. Throughout the book of Acts, we have been following this story of Paul. He was a Jew who was once a persecutor of Christians, who had an encounter with Jesus Christ and was transformed to become a missionary of Jesus Christ, both to the Jews and to the non-Jews. And so this has led to a great amount of turmoil, plots against his life and criminal charges, But over the past few chapters, he has gone from one judge to another judge to another judge, none of whom have been able to find him guilty, and yet none of whom were willing to release him. So last week, we set the stage for Paul's fifth defense that he makes in the book of Acts. And the author of Acts gave proof after proof after proof that Paul was innocent of all of his charges. But now this new judge that he's standing before in the verses we're going to read this morning, his name is Festus, and he was a Roman governor of the region of Judea. And he could not figure out what charge to write down when he sent Paul to go stand trial before the emperor, which Paul had demanded. And so Festus calls for his neighboring colleague, whose name was Agrippa, who had a royal heritage, and he had a comprehensive understanding of the Jewish culture. So he's he's a he's a colleague 
of similar standing, but because of his uh, royal heritage, he's often referred to as king. But they're all underneath um, the emperor. And so here's where Paul is going to stand yet again and to defend his innocence. And he is going to once again focus on resurrection as the source of his innocence. So you'll see this laid out in your outline on your uh, bulletin that Paul connects his innocence first to God's promise of resurrection. Second, to the fulfillment of that resurrection, which he experienced. And thirdly, to how that resurrection determines his mission. And friends, this morning, I hope we see that it determines ours as well. So let's start by reading together Acts 26 verses 1 through 11 and understand that God's promise to his people has always been one of resurrection. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have my permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Friends, in these beginning verses, Paul anchors his defense once again in the issue of resurrection. He makes basically the exact same defense that he has made four times previously. He begins with the Old Testament. He begins with the promise by God to the Jews of resurrection. That is where he anchors his defense. In verse 4, Paul says that from his youth, he was brought up studying the scriptures. And in verse 5, he claims that he has adhered 
during this whole time from his youth to the most strict standard of obedience to the law. He says in verse 6 that his current predicament is not in fact at odds with that history. All of that study and devotion is not at odds to his current belief in resurrection. But in fact, a reasoned hope in that same promise from God is why he stands there this morning. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. What is that promise? It's resurrection. Paul's defense has been and continues to be that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. He says it over and over and over again in all of the defenses that he's made up until this point. Acts 23, verse 6, one of his previous defenses. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Acts 24, verses 14 and 15, another trial. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having a hope in God that there will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. And so because of this repetition, I, I read a little bit of exas, exas, exasperation uh, in Paul's voice when, when he says in verse 8, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He, he, he can't understand why is this so confusing. He, he keeps saying the same thing over and over again. But it also brings him back in verses 9 through 11 to the other thing that he has said over and over again in each of these defenses. That he himself was guilty of misunderstanding. He himself was guilty of failing to recognize what that resurrection promise looked like. He was guilty of persecuting not just the followers of Jesus, but in fact persecuting Jesus Christ himself. And that is where Paul's argument is going to go next. But before we jump into that, I want to ask you one question. What is Paul's point here? How is this even a defense? How is resurrection a defense. Friends, his point is that his hope is only in the fulfilled promise of God through resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that hope, we will see, is the foundation for absolutely everything that Paul does. Everything that God promised to his people depends on God fulfilling his promise of resurrection. 
So let's move on and let's see how that truth manifests in Paul's specific defense. Read with me verses 12 through 23 as Paul gives this example in his own life of the power of resurrection fulfilled. In this connection, that is Paul persecuting Christ followers in foreign cities. So in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. In these verses, Paul shows how the resurrection of Jesus led to his own resurrection. Resurrection from a persecutor of Jesus to a witness of the resurrection of Jesus to everyone. Jesus identifies himself directly in this conversation with Paul in verse 15. He says, it is, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The same Jesus who died is now speaking directly to Paul slash Saul. And that is the witness and the testimony that Paul himself was raised up. Did you hear that word that Jesus said to him? Rise 
up to carry from verse 16. And friends, this morning, I want us to see the intended result of that resurrection. Verse 18, that the Jews and Gentiles both may open their eyes to turn from darkness to light, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Verse 23 says that Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. Resurrection is a promise from God. And so the resurrection of Jesus fulfilled that promise. And it made it possible for more resurrections to follow his That is the result of resurrection. The resurrection of Paul. The resurrection of Jew and Gentile. The resurrection of of you and me here this morning is only accomplished by that first resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I've said the word resurrection a lot. And that may sound extremely familiar to those of you who have been studying through Acts. In in fact, this defense is so similar to what Paul said back in Acts 24, which I preached on a few weeks ago, that, that I was genuinely concerned that this sermon would end up being a little bit redundant. Because Paul is saying the exact same thing. He says, I am a devout Jew. I persecuted the Christians. Then Jesus rose from the dead and he spoke to me. He raised me up and sent me to witness this before both Jew and Gentile. It's the exact same message, friends. There is nothing new here except, again, this very repetition I think is crucial to understand what Paul is doing here. There is something new. Look at verse 22 again. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so, I stand here testifying. Paul has made his same defense over And over again. But it has not led to his release. It has not led to his acquittal. What has it led to? It's led to this moment where he is standing here making the same defense again. And again. And again. It has done nothing but give him more opportunity to witness to the truth of Jesus. It's led to years of his imprisonment. It's led to a lack of justice and no verdict from the officials. On and on, up and up, higher and higher. If this was me, at a certain point, I would probably have changed my defense a little bit. (laughs) If this defense hasn't worked... 
by the fifth time, (laughs) maybe I would try something different. But Paul says that he is standing there testifying yet again, not because of a lack of justice, but because of the help that comes from God. What is it that God is helping Paul to do? He is helping him to be a faithful witness. To remain steadfast in his hope, not of acquittal, but of resurrection. By the help that comes from God, Paul sees this lack of justice, not as an impediment to his mission. It's not getting in the way. It is the very mechanism that God has used to provide an opportunity to serve the testimony of Jesus. Friends, it is astounding, but it is what Paul wants to be in that very position. He wants to be in the place where he can best serve the one who raised him up. He wants to serve above all else the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's read verses 24 through 32. And we'll conclude here this morning as we see how the mission of resurrection drives Paul to that desire, that desire above all else for the things of God. Verses 24 through 32. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Friends, here is the mission of resurrection. More resurrection. 
as Paul testifies through the help of God to the truth of Jesus Christ, Festus draws one simple conclusion. This guy's crazy. Paul, you are crazy. And and just as I read some exasperation in Paul's voice in verse 8, I I read the same kind of exasperation in Festus' words in verse 24. Paul, you're out of your mind. Festus now simply can't understand why Paul is so hung up on resurrection. Why are you doing this, Paul? What you're saying is crazy. And Agrippa even points out in verse 32 in their, in their little aside session that Paul could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. But Paul doesn't want to be free. We've already established that his persistent defense of Christ's resurrection doesn't make sense as a means to gain his freedom. What does he want? What does it make sense in? What reasoning could possibly make this all fit together? He tells us in verse 29 that no matter what it takes, he would to God that not only Agrippa, but Festus and Bernice and all who hear his testimony would become like him except for the chains. That they would be persuaded to trust the resurrection of Jesus. That they would be persuaded to become Christians. Paul wants that once what God wants to proclaim the fulfillment of God's promise to all of his people. So why does Paul keep making this same defense? Not because he hopes that it will win his freedom, but because he hopes that those who hear his testimony will win their freedom. Their freedom from death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Festus and Agrippa fail to understand this Radical resurrection reasoning. They're baffled. They don't understand that what Paul seeks is their freedom. Because friends, Paul is not crazy. He is innocent through the blood of Jesus. He has been resurrected according to the hope of God. And now he is God's servant who has been appointed to testify to the Jews and the Gentiles, and in just a very short while, before the king. And so he speaks the true and rational words of resurrection. How do we apply all of this this morning? What does this mean for us? I ask you this morning to choose to operate using resurrection reasoning. Make choices knowing that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Here are just a couple of examples of what that might look like for you. 
first to the kids. What if your brother or your sister is doing something the wrong way? Not the way that you want them to do. Think about what is more important at that moment. Getting them to do it the right way, the way that you want, or showing them the type of love of Jesus who gave up so much more so that he could be with you and he could be with them. Adults, what if you're struggling to see any good in your neighbor who is always arguing with you or who fails to respect your property? I want you to consider this morning not simply how you could tolerate their behavior or maybe be civil when there's no other way to avoid them, but consider how you could get to know the heart of what they're dealing with. How you could love them and learn to care for the things that they care about. In either of those examples, friends, the key is beginning to orient your heart with the heart of God. Because Jesus' death and resurrection isn't the end. We don't stop there. It's the beginning of your own resurrection. And your own resurrection isn't the end either. God wants to make your resurrection the beginning of the resurrection story of someone else. Those that he sends you to as his servant and witness to the things in which you have seen Jesus. That, friends, is so much more important than your own freedom. And when you start thinking in this radical resurrection reasoning, you will make choices that seem crazy. You might give up your turn for your brother and your sister, not once, but every time. You might give more than 10% of your tithe. You might pass over a better job for the sake of your family. You might forgive someone who has wronged you terribly. You might stop doing some activity that you love to spend more time reading your Bible. You might even go without food for a time to pray. Crazy. You might adopt a child or volunteer at the PRC. You might take perspectives. You might... Or, 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 yes, anything. that the, the reasoning with what you do in your life will be changed about how you spend your time or your money when resurrection becomes the heart of every decision that you make. Because you will start to care more about God and more about those who are dying and lost than those, than, than yourself. And that, friends, is how the kingdom of God will grow against all odds into the likeness of the resurrected Christ. 
So in conclusion, we have seen this morning that resurrection reasoning is central to the kingdom of God. God, from the very beginning, made this promise of resurrection to his people. He accomplished it through his son, Jesus, who was the first to rise. And he made a way for us to follow in him. Which makes furthering the resurrection mission everything that his people care about. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your son. We thank you, God, for Jesus who, who raised up and then made it possible for us to be raised with him, God. Lord, I pray for myself that I would grow in this resurrection reasoning. Lord, help me to see everything in my life as a part of your picture, God. The things that you have brought specifically into my heart, into my life, that my heart may grow. God, that my, my focus would shift from myself to you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you. Amen.